I thought this morning I would take the opportunity to share with you a little bit more about the project that uh, we've been setting up in Argentina. And I'd like to do that by way of starting by looking at Psalm 119. The nice thing about being asked to speak, and I don't normally like speaking, but the nice thing about being asked to speak is you can talk on things that you enjoy talking about. So I'm taking the opportunity this morning to talk about something that's really close to my heart. And that's Psalm 119. Well, Psalm 119 is pretty famous, we all know it, because it's the longest psalm in the Bible. And that's about as much as a lot of people tend to know it's the longest psalm in the Bible. But when you look at Psalm 119, it's all about knowing God. How can we experience God? How can we encounter God and live a righteous and just life before God? And the psalmist is convinced that we can do that through God's word that it's God's word that gives us an encounter with God himself, that gives us an experience that should be long-lasting and life-changing. Okay, these are some verses, just, just ones that I actually picked out around them from Psalm 119. And let's look at them. Basically, it says, your testimonies are also my delight. In Psalm 119, it uses many different words to basically refer to God's word, okay? It uses statutes, principles, precepts, testimonies, law, Torah, which is instruction, and word. He says lots of different words to refer back to what God has communicated to us and in different ways. So we have, your testimonies are also my delight. In other words, there's something that brings sheer joy and pleasure, okay? I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. God's word should bring freedom to us, okay, in, on many different levels and many different forms. I became a Christian, if you don't mind me sharing something very personal. I became a Christian when I was 12. I was actually suicidal. Not one of those things, if I don't have an Xbox for Christmas, I'll kill myself. I mean, I'm really suicidal. But God found me. I wasn't looking for him. God found me. And when I discovered God's word, the whole world opened up to me. God's word brings freedom. Okay, remember, Lord, your ancient laws, and I find comfort in them. God's word should also be a great comfort to us. And then if we move on, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. That's always encouraging, isn't it? Okay, your covenant laws are always right. Help me to understand them, then I will live. God's word is life-enhancing, life-giving, and life-sustaining. And these are all experiences we can expect to encounter when we encounter God in his word. Okay? And I'm sure that many of us have done that. As we study God's word for ourselves, as we've read it, we've experienced some of these things and more. Or maybe we've heard a good sermon and it's really touched our heart and we've understand, understood something more about God and encountered that for ourselves. Or maybe we've read a really good book that's really helped us in our Christian life to develop our relationship with God. There's many, many ways. But if you're anything like me, and I would have to admit, there's many times I don't understand God's word. It's not always a comfort when I read it. And sometimes it's downright confusing when I read it. And sometimes when I listen to a sermon, I'm not in agreement with the sermon, and I begin to wonder what's going on here. So God's word isn't automatically a comfort. It doesn't automatically seem to give us understanding. There's a lot of things it doesn't automatically do. And I sometimes wonder why does it need to be that way. But if you look at it... Oh, there's people up there. Hello. Um, didn't realize. If you look at it... God's word was written a very long time ago. There's a huge distance in time, in culture, and in language. So it's probably not surprising that there are many parts of God's word we might not understand. 
But if, again, if you're anything like me, it's not the parts I don't understand that really cause me confusion. It's a bit that I do. So God's word isn't always that easy to deal with. Now, the psalmist gives us a clue as to how to approach God's word because God's word needs to be approached in a certain way for us to encounter God in it. And the examples that he gives us were found in our reading. And I'm just going to run through them very quickly. Okay, probably I'll use different words to um, the way it was read out. But basically, the attitude that the psalmist thinks we should have is that, one, we should diligently, diligently seek God's word. We should treasure it. We should tell of it or teach it to others. Um, many years ago, I was studying in Bolivia, supposedly studying Spanish, but it didn't work. And I was sent out with a, a preacher out into the countryside, right in the back of beyond, and there was a rather large building, which was a church, and it just seemed to be stand out, no other houses for miles around. Yeah, on the, Monday, the Sunday morning service was completely packed full of Christians. And the preacher, at the end of the service, what he did was he got everyone to turn to their neighbor and tell them what they just heard, okay? Tell them the sermon. How did that sermon impact them? What they thought it would mean for them during the week? And then they prayed for one another. He got it. He got this whole thing about telling others about what you've heard about God's word. I wonder what, what would happen if we did that in Fitzroy on occasions. Right, Steve? So God's word is a very powerful thing. In God's word, we can encounter God. But sadly, that's not always the case, is it? We're very fortunate here in Northern Ireland. Uh, we've kind of somehow set up a church system where we train our ministers well, and our ministers become our teaching elder, and they are, are responsible. We set them aside time so that they may study God's word and bring that study back to us. And that's very fortunate. We are incredibly fortunate here. But now, uh, use your imaginations. It's just an imagination. Supposedly, our minister couldn't preach. Okay? Suppose our minister was absolutely useless at teaching us. Again, here in Northern Ireland, we're incredibly fortunate. And in Fitzroy, even more fortunate still. We've got any number of people who could come up here and preach. Desi, David, Janet, and many, many others who could come up here and teach us. And what if we didn't have those? Well, dander into town and go to a Christian bookshop and pick up one of hundreds of really well-written book, books that would help us understand God's word, help us to have an encounter with God. What if you couldn't be annoyed to walk into town? Well, get onto Amazon, get out of a book, and four or five days' time, it's on your doorstep. We are very fortunate. That's not the case for many, many people. If you think of maybe one of the, your favorite Christian books, not a Bible book, a Christian written book that's really helped you encounter God, to understand him, and, and helped you move on to maturity in your Christian life, think of one of your favorite ones. The odds are that doesn't exist in Spanish, for example. That book doesn't exist. And if it did, it probably would be priced in such a way that the pastor couldn't afford it. So they, didn't, they do not have access in the same way that we do. This ends up generating a certain kind of attitude in the church and a certain kind of dynamic. And we're going to have a quick look at that. This is the, the, the Lausanne Conference, which met in November, I think it was, of last year. Okay, they have a wonderful motto, and that's the whole church taking the whole gospel to the whole world. And basically, there are, there are, I didn't attend it. I was writing a dissertation. Um, probably wouldn't have had money anyway. But 
There are about 4,000 evangelical leaders uh, and writers and preachers and teachers from around the world at the Lausanne Conference. And basically, they, they read together, they prayed together, they worshiped together, and they shared papers together to discuss and to look at what is happening in the church worldwide. What are some of the basic needs and what are some of the reasons for, for rejoicing? And one of the biggest needs that they decided was worldwide, and not just in what people term the two-thirds world, I particularly dislike that term, but not just in the two-thirds world either. But one of the things they determined was the major problems of the church, the evangelical church worldwide, is Bible poverty. Okay? That actually isn't a new term. They didn't coin it okay, at, at uh, Lausanne. It had been written about previously. And the phenomenon has been known for many, many years. Anybody involved in teaching theological education or missionaries overseas would know this phenomenon, maybe not by the, these words. Okay? And there are three descriptions of what Bible poverty is. And the first one is, yeah, carry on. First one is when you have no access to the Bible in your native language, okay? And we all know of many tribes and people who might not have access to the Bible in their own language. And there are many organizations involved in translating God's word into that language so they may have access to it. And the next occurrence that we might have of Bible poverty is when somebody's literary skills are so poor they can't have access to the Bible themselves. And the third one is the most prevalent, and that is when they have no access to scriptures in a way that the scriptures become transformative in their lives due to poor or little theological education on the part of those who are responsible for maturity, for teaching, and for discipleship in the church. And that's Bible poverty. Lausanne set at his goal to eradicate Bible poverty. And I'm sure we would all be in agreement with that. The project that uh, I'm in the process of setting up and getting involved in in Argentina goes one step towards uh, meeting this goal. And I thought I'd just tell you a little bit about that this morning. Okay. This is Argentina. I, I did debate this morning whether or not I would show you pictures of Argentina um, because, you know, don't take up your time just showing you pictures. But I actually love Argentina and um, it's too beautiful not to show you pictures. So we're going to roll through some pictures, okay? Just knock them on. Okay, we're going to go from the north to the south. Okay, it's a huge country, very, very beautiful. So in the north, you've got almost like subtropical regions. And then you come further down south, and you begin to hit the desert regions. And then you move over towards the uh, foothills of the Andes, and, and you hit places like Mendoza, and um, that's where they grow all the wine and grapes and fruit and all such a very beautiful area. And this is Buenos Aires, the capital. Okay. Uh, now, I'm a country bumpkin, um, hillbilly from Wales. I'm not really a city boy at all, but I actually love Buenos Aires. It's the most amazingly beautiful city. This is the widest avenue in the world. Buenos Aires has also got the longest avenue in the world because it's quite a big city. And it's very beautiful. That is the whole avenue. And the green bits that you can see going down the middle, those are quite new in the history of that avenue because they put them up to kind of split up the avenue because it was too wide. It takes quite a while to cross. There you go. And we come further on down south to the arable regions. There you go. This is your Argentine cowboy. He's a gaucho. That's what they're called. There you go. And that's your... That's not a Sunday lunch, that's any old lunch. Okay, in Argentina there's a saying, if it, if it crawls, you can throw it on the Paris, the, you can throw it on the barbecue, okay? So if it crawls, you just throw it on there, generally whole. Um, 
So if you come and visit, that's what you'd be getting for lunch, okay? And that's my favorite drink, that's mate. I'm sure many of you have seen me drinking that. You see, I'm not the only one. They do drink it in Argentina. There we go. And as you come further down south, you hit some beautiful, beautiful um, lake districts. Ah, oh, the hardship of living in Argentina, it's amazing. There you go, that's Mount Fitzroy. I thought I'd put that up for you. <laughs> that's really quite far down south. There you go. So you get everything from subtropical right down to glaciers. It's got everything. Okay. Okay. I'm going to give you a few facts and figures. And I say this to everyone. If you're anything like me, you'll forget them. I can't keep a figure in my head. But this will begin to give you some kind of inkling of what it's like in Argentina. What are some of the dynamics of the society and culture? Argentina is 11 times bigger than in the UK. The population of greater Buenos Aires is about 14 million. Now, best way to think about Buenos Aires is to, is to think of London. You've got central London and greater London, okay? Buenos Aires is exactly the same. You've got central Buenos Aires, and that's about 9 million people live there. And then in greater Buenos Aires, there's 14 million people, okay? How many people live in Northern Ireland? 1.5, right? Sometimes 1.5, 1.8, so I don't know. Somewhere like that. That's one neighborhood. In, in fact, that's smaller than my neighborhood when I lived in, in Buenos Aires. There's about two million lived in my neighborhood. So it's a big country. The total population of Argentina is only 40 million. So it's a very sparsely populated country. Uh, a couple of weeks back, we were at the Latin Link conference, a yearly conference, and it was absolutely a wonderful, wonderful conference. And we had people, missionaries speaking there from Brazil. Do you know there are 40 million evangelical Christians in, in Brazil? 40 million evangelical Christians in Brazil. There are only 40 million people living in Argentina. So you can see it's a very sparsely populated country for its size. Okay. According to Biblica, and, okay, the evangelical church in Argentina tripled between 1980 and 2000. It has slowed down. It, nobody, nobody would claim it's still tripling, but it is growing, and it is growing very, very quickly. In 2001, um, the country went totally bankrupt. Um, the the corruption of the government became very, very evident. Within the space of two weeks, we had five, five um, presidents. Uh, everybody was rather frightened about what was going to happen. And the church actually stepped up to the mark at that point and really began to uh, open up all sorts of programs to, uh, to reach out to the, to the now growing, um, not a minority any longer, of, of poor people. And the church continues to grow in that way. Okay. So what are some of the challenges facing the church in Argentina? Okay, and that, the, the first challenge is that of growth. It's a wonderful problem to have. You just imagine it. You look at the person sitting next to you. You come into church next week. You're probably sitting next to a stranger because the church is growing. How do you account for that? How do you help those people to grow to maturity? How do you account for discipleship? What about counseling and training? What about the whole pastoral element? What do you do when the church grows like that? Okay. Society in Argentina, and it has grown since 2001, problems with, with addictions, uh, psychosexual problems, HIV, violence, familial abuse, all these things have grown since 2001, and since the level of poverty has grown in the country, they almost seem to go hand in hand, okay? And so the church is having to deal with these problems in, in a way that it's never had to before. When I first went to Argentina, in 1993, and you all know I started to work with the Resurrection Foundation, and we worked in these areas of abuse and 
drug addictions, psychosexual problems, and HIV. The church didn't want to know. Church wouldn't go anywhere near us most of the time. Yet the vast majority that we were counseling for problems with psychosexual dynamics were Christians. And they came to us almost, you know, hiding from folk. Ministers, all kinds. But if you ask, can we come to your church and train people? Can we come to your church and talk about these things to educate them? No way, they didn't want it. But the church is beginning only now to respond to some of these things. It still doesn't know how to, to react um, in front of many of these problems. And, I, and we can't actually blame it. I, I don't think we're very good in Northern Ireland dealing with some of these problems either. And we've got much better training for our ministers here. So they're not necessarily easy problems to deal with. Okay, if we look, the biggest seminaries are located in Buenos Aires, okay, which is the capital. And um, basically, it's like imagining we would have to go to France or to Spain, basically, if we wanted to study theology, because there's nothing around here for us to do so. It's a huge country. And what happens is that a church might identify a young man or woman as being a good future leader, and they'd send them off to Bible college in the, in the capital city, and they'd never see them again because theological education takes a very long time. Now, I came here from Wales to study, and after six, studying here for six years, Northern Ireland was home for me. I, I never thought of Wales as home. And I went out to Argentina from, Nor from Northern Ireland, as Northern Ireland being my home. You imagine these people come from the interior of the country, they study in anything between six to eight years, because they have to work and then study in the evening. They don't think of the interior of their country as, uh, as their home anymore. And at the same time, why go back to somewhere where probably are not going to be able to pay you a full-time wage, so why bother? You stay in the capital where you can find a church who will pay you a full-time wage. And so the churches are losing their future leaders, okay? And in fact, in Argentina, we lose them almost twice over. Because if they come to, for example, Bel um, Belfast, um, Buenos Aires Bible uh, Institute, where, where I taught, some of the top students, the ones who are identified as being some of the best students, are normally sent to the States to study, and very few of them ever come back from the States. They get offered churches, uh, Spanish-speaking churches in the States, and very few want to come back. So we lose our leaders, our future leaders, twice over. Okay, and we need to do something to stop that. The other thing is that the churches become incredibly suspicious about theological education. What on earth are you doing to our young people? We never see them again once we send them there. Okay, and so... They begin to wonder, what on earth are you doing up there? What are you studying for? What's the point of looking at that? And then they go off to uh, Bible college, and the ones who do go back on holiday from college and term time and might want to get involved in their church, they come back with very strange terms like the synoptic problem, and goodness knows what, and I think, well, grief, what is the synoptic problem? What are you teaching these people? What's this got to do with a young woman, you know, who, who's just lost a child? What are you teaching these things for? So they basically say, have a great suspicion regarding theological education. And on occasions, it's warranted. Okay, so what's the response? How can we possibly respond to that kind of need? Part of the response is to set up the Southern Theological Seminaries project. And the only thing we can do is to take theological education to them and stop expecting them to come to us in, in the capital. Okay? And STS, Southern Theological Seminaries, will provide this in the south of Argentina in, in a region called Patagonia, and I'll explain why in a moment. Okay, initially we will do this through theological education by extension around small groups or centers or hubs in, in different towns in, in the south of Argentina. And we will go, we'll put on 16-week courses. The first week will be an intensive in which they have to be present. After that, it's at a distance course uh, using uh, the internet. And, uh, 
each student will have at least one hour a weekly session face-to-face -face with a tutor over the internet. Uh, the internet is a wonderful thing. It's allowing us to be able to do this. And everyone has internet in Argentina. In fact, Argentina has better internet and mobile phone coverage than the UK does. And I, I can't get over this. I go home to Wales. I go uh, to visit my sister who lives up a hill on, on a farm. I can't get phone coverage. I go to the north of Argentina to a place called Umawaka, and believe you me, that's the back of beyond, and you get phone coverage. It's amazing. Argentina has got amazing mobile and uh, internet coverage. And we need to use it because it's going to help us in the project. Eventually, we will build our own seminary uh, in, a, in a Patagonian town. And I'll tell you what town that might be in a moment. Now let's have a look. Okay, the seminary itself is going to provide theological formation and vocational training. Why have we called it theological formation? And, and the reason for that is, in Argentina, if you call something education, then you go and you study for six years and you've got your education. People wouldn't think of opening a book again after that. But if you talk about something as being formation, they kind of understand that as being a lifelong process. And we need to get it into our students that theological training, studying the scriptures, is a lifelong event. It's a, a lifelong project that we interact with God's word on a lifelong basis, not thinking that we've studied it now and we've got it. Okay? And the vocational training, I'll come back to why we're doing vocational training in a moment. We will also be opening up a therapeutic clinic. And this is a big project, <laughs> if you haven't noticed. Okay? And um, the reason for this is that um, nobody in, in Argentina is at all ashamed about going to see a therapist, be it a psychiatrist or a psychologist, to talk about their problems. Nobody is. And that's simply the way the culture is, is in Argentina. The way that they look at it is, if you have a sore throat, you go and speak to a doctor. If you're worrying about something, you've got questions about something, and you're not sure what you're feeling, you go to somebody who's trained to tell you about these things and talk to you about these things. And the person trained for that is a psychologist or, or a therapist. So they have absolutely no problem going to see a therapist. Um, um, about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, um, as you know, I've been doing a course on art psychotherapy, so I fully believe in therapy, obviously. And while you're on the course, you have to go and see a therapist yourself. Anybody in training to be a therapist has to see a therapist during that time. And I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I've loved it. And um, I was going off to see my shrink, as I call her. And um, I was late, so I got a taxi. And so the taxi driver was driving away. Da, da, da. Lovely weather. Yeah, great weather. Oh, you've always been very changeable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Off to work, are you? I said, no, I'm going to see my shrink. Boom. He didn't know what to do. You could feel him tense up. And then, and then I felt, oh, no, I'm OK. You know, I'm on this course. And, and I thought, why did I have to explain any of that to him? I'm OK. Why? Because we really have a huge suspicion about people who need to see therapists. In Argentina, it doesn't exist. It's quite refreshing on a very large scale. It's very refreshing. Now, the clinic itself will offer therapy to the poor elements of, of the community that suffer many, many problems who can't actually access therapy because they don't have the money. So the, the, the clinic itself will be able to offer that to the poor elements at a re reduced rate. Um, Etc. But at the same time, we will be able to train our students who are going to become pastors under strict supervision, basically, how to get involved in, in a pastoral and a counseling um, dynamic with, with a member of the congregation, how to counsel, how to listen, and give them some of the most basic elements in, in the therapeutic arsenal, basically, so that they start off uh, with at least the basics when they start in. I've 
I've spoken from the front uh, a good many times about how many pastors I've encountered that have given such dreadful advice that has even caused the life of uh, the person they've given that advice to because they haven't been trained. Well-meaning, but badly trained. And so we need to be able to train them completely and holistically, and that's what the STS intends to do. There we go. Uh, who are we going to do this with? This is Pablo, Pablo and Gigi. Pablo and Gigi are former students of mine uh, at the, from the, the Buenos Aires Bible Institute. We've become very good friends. Pablo is actually from the south, so he understands uh, the dynamics and the society down, down south. He has studied uh, both in Argentina and the States, and basically we started talking many years ago about what would it look like to stop this drain from the, from the interior of the country to, to Buenos Aires. What would that project look like? And we began to daydream, and began to dream about it. Well, if we did this, then we'd need that, and et cetera, et cetera. And that's how STS started, okay? Let's go on. So where are we going to be doing it? We're going to be doing it in Patagonia. That's a map of Argentina, and that's the map of, of uh, Patagonia, which is basically the bottom half. If you look at Argentina and basically cut it in half, it's nearly the whole half of um, Argentina. There we go. Can you move that on? Okay. We're going to start in a town called San Martín de los Andes uh, for a number of reasons, uh, not least of all. Pablo is originally from there, so he knows it very well. And so it's probably a good place to start somewhere that you've got a good foothold. Okay. The estimated population is about 29,000. There, okay, uh, it's apparently gone up to 30,000. I don't know who these people are. They must be standing outside the hospital counting babies come out or something, but there's about 30,000 there now. And there are 20 denominations or churches. In Argentina, um, the Roman Catholic Church doesn't have to, but the Protestant Church has to register with the Ministry of Cults, it's called. Now, they're not, um, you know, as we would, uh, might understand that, but it's, it's the Ministry of Cults, and any Protestant church needs to be registered. Many churches do not because they can't afford to pay for it or because they don't think their numbers are big enough and churches split all the time. So there are 20 registered churches. Uh, there are many, many more. In fact, I, when I was there, I was taken around one barrio, one neighborhood that had about 20 churches in it, okay? Ranging from five people up to 50 people. And uh, there was that many because they kept on splitting, okay? Out of those uh, 20 churches, only three pastors are employed full-time by their church. The rest work part-time. Some of them work full-time in secular work and discharge their pastoral duties to the church on top of that. This is why, if we're going to help the church and we're going to help the, the leaders of the church in a holistic way, we need to give them vocational training. That means we need to give them skills that are employable because they're going to have to find some kind of employment. And we've got a number of Christian businessmen and women who are on board who are willing to open up businesses, train our uh, students, and pay them while they do it, and that gets fed back into uh, STS. Eventually, our aim is to become as close to self-sustaining as we possibly can, and we will hope to do that through the whole business area and business side and the vocational training. Okay? Only five of these pastors have anything that we would call formal theological education. And that would range, range from doing two or three modules to maybe doing one or two years uh, at a course somewhere. Okay? The rest of nothing. Absolutely nothing. They were just recognized as being charismatic people, um, probably good leadership, and then put into leadership from that perspective. Okay? Okay. This is San Martín de los Andes. That's where it is. And if you look down from where the arrow is, down to a place called El Calafate, can you see that? 
Right above that, there's a place called El Chaten. That's where Mount Fitzroy is. I thought you might like to know. <laughs> okay, it's all the way down there. Okay. You, I'm going to show you some pictures of San Martin so you get an idea of the, the hardships I'm going to endure while I'm there. Okay. It does snow. It snows a lot in the winter. Okay, can you hold it there a moment? I tell everyone this. All the other pictures, bar this one, of San Martin, I pilfered off the internet. Okay? This is the one that I took when I went uh, to visit. And I was there in the summertime. Okay? And I had just flown down from Buenos Aires. And in Buenos Aires, we had 38 to 45 degrees heat, 80 to 99% humidity. It was horrible, absolutely horrible. Uh, but sun was split in the trees. Get to San Martin de los Andes, it rained all week. And it actually, the sun came out on the day that I went home to, to, to Buenos Aires. So it's gray, it's green, you never see the sun, and it rains all the time. Does it remind you of anywhere? I should feel quite at home there, really. Okay. Oh, I need to go one back. And that, in more or less a, a nutshell, is the project. Okay. Um, and before I finish, because I'm now going to finish, um, I really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. The support and the love and the concern that I've, I've experienced here in Fitzroy has been absolutely amazing. Um, if you think back to Christmas time when we did a kit out Collins kitchen, um, I've got a fully kitted kitchen, thank you so much. <laughs> and all that remains of me to invite you to come along and experience it sometime. Come and have a, a mate, a cup of tea, an asado, you're more than welcome. Also, I'd like to thank all those who were involved on, on Tuesday night. It was such an amazing evening. I want to thank everyone who actually turned up. There was a really good number that turned up in a midweek uh, meeting. It was absolutely incredible. And the music was amazing. I, I left uh, buzzing. I left on a high. Couldn't get asleep for ages. It was amazing. But the one thing that also stood out to me were the young people who actually came along and played. And they did that during their exam time. I was really touched by that. So I just want to say a really heartfelt time. Thank you. <laughs>